You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hi, everybody. This is Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt. And joining me today, I'm so excited, is one of my favorite authors, Kathleen Glasgow. She is a New York Times bestselling author. She's the author of Girl in Pieces, How to Make Friends with the Dark, and her most recent book, which will be out very soon, September 28th, You'd Be Home Now. Thank you so much for joining me, Kathleen. Thank you for having me, Christina. I'm so excited. I was just telling you before we went live that it's not too often that I actually get to talk to somebody who authored one of the the books that I've read recently that I loved. And I have to say, I read Girl in Pieces, which I have here, and I highly recommend to everybody. I read that very recently and I reached out to you and I was so excited to hear back from you and you agreed to do the podcast. I Full disclosure, I have not read yet How to Make Friends with the Dark, but I have it. It's next on my list. And I did read an advanced copy of You'd Be Home Now, and I thought it was wonderful. Okay. And that's out September 28th. So thank you. So let's get started. I'm so excited. I don't even know where to start, which book. Um, obviously, there's a theme in your books and they are young adults. We were just saying earlier though, that I'm 46 and I read two of them and I didn't really feel like I was reading a young adult book It because there were a lot of adult issues in the book books. And I think a lot of things that adults can really relate to. So can you tell me why Why are the issues that you address in these books so important to you? You know, Girl in Pieces was, um, to sum up very briefly, a book about Charlie who um, had a lot of family issues, um, didn't come from a warm, nurturing environment, and was a cutter and had some substance issues. And the people around her had a lot of the same issues. And you'd be home now was a lot of the same issues, but from a different perspective, Emery, the main character was experiencing being in a family where her brother had a substance abuse issue. Mm -hmm. Um, So why are these important issues to you? They're important issues for me, especially um, in writing books for young adults you know, a lot of things happen to you as a team that you really don't know how to process. And I mean, I don't like that word process because it makes it sound like your feelings and your experiences are paperwork. But you remember being a teen, it's like a really scary, exciting, painful, heartbreaking, and sometimes really joyful time. And that's a lot to deal with. And I, you know, I cover these issues because when I was a teenager, I had these experiences of self-harm and depression and being in a psychiatric unit a few times. I had experiences of having family members with substance abuse issues. And they're important to me. They've shaped me. They have made me 
the person that I am. And I, I truly believe that art can be a really healing factor and I'm a writer. And so this is the way I process the things that I've been through is through writing through them. And I want to be the person who writes the book that some young adult or adult reads and says, I see myself in that book. Like that's me. And I'm not as alone as I thought I was. And it, it validates their feelings. Books are a really safe place to explore and experience things that maybe you don't have the vocabulary to articulate yet, or you're too afraid to talk about them, but you can hold that book dear for the rest of your life because you can say like this book really meant something to be like, I'm in this book. And I'm sure that you had books like that as a young person as well, where you're like, they just blew the top of your head off because you thought, wow, this is like my life on the page. Yeah, I mean, I had a love affair with books from a young age and I had a, you know, not an easy childhood and substance right. abuse issues in my family. And I love books. Yeah. And I really think that a lot of that has to do with using books when I was a kid as an escape. Yeah. Getting lost in a book. And you know, you can do anything in a book. You can travel, you can be someone else, you can have exposure to things that you might not otherwise be able to have exposure to, especially as a kid, because you don't have as much control over your environment. Right. And so I think for me, you know, I love books and, and my boyfriend teases me about all the books that I have in my house. It's kind yeah. of ridiculous, but I have an, a strong emotional attachment to them. Right. And I do think it's because of that experience growing up and, and feeling that loneliness and feeling different and, you know, not really seeing, at least I think all teenagers probably feel like some level of loneliness, like there's nobody like me. There's nobody that's going through anything yeah. like me. Yeah. But they are. And the I like what you do with your books is you provide a glimpse into their story so that I hope that there are lots of other kids that are reading these books and thinking, oh, there are other people that have had this experience or something like it. Yeah, I think particularly with Girl in Pieces, um, nobody really likes to talk about the issue of self-harm. And because I was a harmer and I still have scars today, you know, I wish that more people talked about it. I wish that there wasn't so much shame attached to it because it is a coping mechanism and usually it comes from a deep trauma that isn't being addressed and again it's another control issue like controlling your environment controlling what happens to your body because you can't control the things that are happening around you and i like what you said about you growing up and having like a difficult childhood and finding your escape in books and somebody recently told me that if you were <laughs> If you were an avid reader as a kid, like you read all the time, and you had an unstable home environment, that reading was actually your way of disassociating from that environment. And I, I thought, oh my God, like that was, that was me. It was like my books were my safe, like comfort space, even if the subjects were like really painful or really scary. Like that was like my world and I could control it and I could lose myself 
in that fictional world. And that's really what inspired me to be a writer is that I, you know, like, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make my stories on the page and I'm going to make everything happen the way that I want to happen. And as an adult being a writer, you know, I, I want kids to find those books that they need, that they can feel like safe and comfortable in that show them you're definitely not the only one feeling this way. Well, I've never been a cutter and I, if I know someone who has done that, they haven't shared that with me and it's not apparent to me that they were a cutter because we probably do know people that have done that. We just they wear like hide it. Needs, you know, they wear sweaters, like even when it's warm. I, like it happens. I had a lot of um, older women like email me after Girl in Pieces came out and they're like, nobody talks about this when I was a teenager and I was doing this. And like, oh my God, like I wish I had had this book. And they're like, I'm going to start wearing like short sleeves. And it is like, it's a very, it's a hard thing because you're, you know, your physical scars, like they last forever, but there's a lot of us out there. And there are a lot of adult women out there and adult men who are harming. And the interesting thing to me about self-harm is the way that if a girl does it, and I mentioned this in Girl in Pieces, you know, she's crazy and she's over-emotional. But if a guy does it, he's like, oh, he's poetic and he's tortured and he's so sad. And, you know, drinking excessively is also a form of self-harm. But when guys do it, you know, it's like, oh, he's blown off steam. And it's like, actually, he might have some issues that he's not addressing. And this, then that's a socially accepted way of, of harming, actually, is like excessive drinking. No, I, yeah, I agree with you there. Yeah. So I wanted to look you up. Like, I mean, I read a lot of books. I don't call all of the authors. But when I read Girl in Peace, I should, right? Oh, come on, you should call them. What do we just talk about? Like, send them an email. Who knows? Well, I'm not always motivated to. Yeah. But when I read Girl in Pieces, I really was struck by it. It was one of those books that it really grabs you and I couldn't put it down. And I learned a lot from the character and her experience of cutting because it wasn't something that I knew a lot about. Yeah. And I always say, I don't really like to have superficial conversations with people. And what I also love about books is you really get into someone's head, you know, how they're feeling, what they think about things, what they're experiencing, which you know, in a casual conversation, you don't always get to know those things unless you ask and you're, you know, there's someone who's receptive and will discuss it. But that's what I loved about the book was really getting into the character's head about, you know, why she did it and what drove her to do it. But then I wondered, how did you know so much about it? And when I Googled you, 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 you're open about it. So can you talk about that? So I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty transparent about the things that I experienced as a, a teenager. And I like, first, let me say that I don't think that authors need to like out their personal experiences in order to validate let a book that they've written, because like, they don't need to do that. You don't, a reader should not need an author to prove that they have experienced these things. Like, don't do that. But I'm very transparent about it. And partly it's because I don't want kids who are harming themselves to feel ashamed. 
it's a compulsion and it's something that sometimes they need to do for whatever reason. Um, and I'm transparent about it because I was a self-harmer as a, a teenager. And when I started writing this book, you know, I didn't, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a publisher. I didn't, I didn't know that it was going to be like a book, but people have been telling me for years, Oh, you should write a memoir about like what happened to you as a teenager. And as a young adult in your twenties, like this is, this would be a really interesting story. And I had no interest in writing a memoir. <laughs> I wouldn't know like the first way to go about it, but I thought that I could frame my story in a fictional way using this character of Charlie Davis. And the first couple of drafts were much different because I wasn't ready to talk about some things. Like in the first drafts, it took me nine years to write this book. She had a twin and she had two parents who were very supportive. And the book actually started like after she'd been in the hospital. And it was a lot, um, it wasn't happier, but she, I wasn't like clicking with Charlie. And then somewhere around the seventh draft, I think, my mother died and I didn't write anything for a year. And I also had just had um, a baby. And I was so lonely, like just achingly lonely and going through all this grief that I realized that Charlie needed to be completely alone. Because even though when I was a teenager, my mother was really supportive of me and she helped me and she was a wonderful presence for everything that I was going through, I still felt like I was completely alone. And it occurred to me that other kids who are going through depression and self-harm, they could have the most loving parents in the world and the most supportive family environment, but they feel completely alone. And so I literally had to make Charlie basically an orphan and put her through this process. And I like to say that I gave Charlie my scars and my feelings about harm and depression, but her story is her own, like her story is fictional. But I also realized when I was writing what was going to become like the book that you're reading now, that if I was going to write about self-harm, I had to be completely honest about it, what it feels like, why someone might be harming and how it feels to be a person with scars in the world, particularly a young girl. And so I just let it all out basically because no one was watching me. I mean, I didn't have an agent. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was like, okay, I will just let it all out. I will be honest because I thought that someday if someone read that book and they were harming, they needed to know that I knew exactly what it felt like. And I, I needed to do justice to their experience, as difficult as that might be for some people to read. And also people who didn't understand what goes on with self-harm, they needed to have a rounded experience of why perhaps kids are doing this. And so I, I let it all out. And then, you know, I, I had no idea that <laughs> I had no idea that it was going to sell um, so well. And it continues to sell really well to this day and I get the most beautiful like heartbreaking and brave letters from readers and it's really it's been an amazing experience well do you think that in the first few drafts do you think that you were 
not being as forthcoming because I think you said your mom had passed at some point during the drafting. Yeah. Did you feel more open to being more honest about your experience because you knew your mom wouldn't read it? No, because my mom would have been, she would have been really, really proud of me because I got my love of reading from my mother and she, she used to bring her typewriter home from her office every weekend. There was one of those old IBM Selectrics. Remember those with the click? And she used to load that thing home for me every weekend so that I could sit there and like write poems and stories like all weekend. And she would have been very supportive of me and the book. And she would have been very supportive of me being open about my experiences. But my mother also would have said, did it have to be so sad? This book is so sad. She would have said that. And that's like, that's fine. Um, But I don't know. I just felt really broken. And I, I realized that Charlie needed to be really broken and she needed to be uh, motherless. And I felt motherless. So some of my feelings about that, you know, that grief process were really, they are in the book. So it's interesting that you're, that you had these struggles as a teenager, but you had a present supportive mom. Yeah. Like I said, you can have the most loving family and supportive atmosphere and you still feel like alone, like tremendously isolated in your feelings and your experience. So, and I, you know, that's partly like what happens with it, with Emery and you'd be home now and Joey, like Joey on paper has a great life. His mother isn't particularly supportive. She's supportive in her kind of rigid rulemaking way. Emery is supportive, but he still feels that way. Like there are just, once you have a compulsion or an addiction, it's really hard to stop. Even if you have a whole support system, it's, I mean, it's, it's a day-to-day management process and you have to learn like step-by-step. So do you feel like for you, the cutting was almost like an addiction, like a where somebody else might've been addicted to alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you have to learn how to like manage your behaviors and that's something that comes through therapy and age and finding other things to do. When the urge to do that one thing hits you, you have to find something else to take it away and go and make it not do it. Like you have to make that active choice. Like I am not I'm not going to live my life this way anymore. And that's a day-to-day, hour-to-hour process. And I, like I said, like you should not shame people or judge them for um, their addictions or their compulsions because shame just makes them shut down because you basically reinforce what they feel about themselves anyway. You know, if people relapse, the thing that they need is support and kindness, not shame and judgment. I think what's hard for people to understand sometimes, you know, even myself, I have to remind myself that addiction is a disease. Yeah. You know, so many people are like, well, just stop. Just just don't drink. Don't keep alcohol in the house. You know, don't go places where they serve it. and You'll be fine. Easy peasy. It's not, it's like, so not the way it works. And I'm amazed. I'm working on, like, I have a, fifth book coming out that's a standalone that is about a 15 year old girl who goes to rehab for she's a self-medicator 
she uses alcohol. And I have her at one point going back to her dad's house. Her parents are divorced. And her dad is drinking beer like he has alcohol in the house. And he tells her, well, because I'm not an alcoholic, like I don't have a problem. So I should still be able to do this. And you know what? You can't, when you're in recovery and I'm in recovery, you can't hang around people who are not going to support you. And that is like a really lonely part of being someone with an addiction is it's like, well, how am I supposed to go home to my family? if there's like alcohol and drugs all over the house and you know, the family will say, well, cause it's not our problem and you went to rehab and you should be fine. And it's like, you have to set boundaries and say goodbye. Like I can, I can, at my point in my recovery and it's been almost 14 years, I can go into a bar with some people and I can hang out and like, usually I have a coffee or like a Coke and then I'll leave when I'm ready. But other people can't. Like you have to understand other people can't and you have to be the person who's like, okay, that's cool. I'll see you tomorrow. Or, okay, why don't you and I just go do something else? We'll go to a movie or something. I mean, there's, and I think that other people are so, they're a little resentful of you. (laughs) Like actually addressing your problems in a real vocal, physical, on the moment way. And they feel like you're judging them because you're saying, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't go because there's going to be a lot of drinking and that makes me uncomfortable. And they take it as a personal attack. And that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people just think it's just eliminating a behavior. Right. And that's, I mean, that's not it. There are other things like you have learned. I think for some people through addiction, you it's a coping mechanism and you have learned how to dull down what you're not ready to address. But then sadly, like the physical part of addiction starts to take hold where your body actually needs it. And that's, that's where like getting real rehabilitation and life care services comes in. Yeah. Um, I think it's hard for people to understand that haven't either that haven't experienced addiction themselves or um, in my case, family members. And I remember a long time ago before I really understood and had been through many years of, uh, you know, seeing them deal with their own addiction. It, it took a long time for me to really understand what we were really dealing with. It wasn't just a matter of, well, just don't do drugs or just don't just almost like, you know, someone who wants to go on a diet, but has a food addiction. Yeah. You know, um, any kind of addiction, really. It, it's not just stopping the behavior. It's, And I think a lot of times people try to find easy ways to do it. I think that, I think that they do. And I think like one thing that I, I want to stress too is that, you know, if you have a family member who has an addiction, who's struggling and who's relapsed and is really having a hard time with it, it is okay for you to set boundaries and say, I can't do this for you anymore. Here's what I can do, but here's what I can't do. Like, that's okay. Like, don't shame those people either because you have to protect yourself too, or you actually can't help someone else. You have to help yourself first and feel safe with yourself first. And it's, it's okay if you have to let go of a family member for a time. It really is because sometimes you're 
behavior by constantly being that fallback for them sometimes is actually enabling them like a little bit more. And I feel like in You'd Be Home Now, like that's the stage that Emery reaches at the end of the book. Like she has to set some boundaries with Joey so that she can have a life because she's 16 and she should not have to take care of her brother. Absolutely. And I, what I really liked about Emery's experience was you can see the shift in the book and I, maybe we should just, you know, kind of tell people there could, this might be spoiler alert. So might want to read the book first, but you can see the shift in Emery throughout the book where she does start to appreciate towards the end that this is her brother's struggle. And it's always going to be there. It's not like you just go to rehab and, you know, like wait for a wound to heal. It's always going to be there. It's not like you just put a Band-Aid on it and, okay, we're done with that now. Which I do think is what the family was sort of trying to do, right? Yeah, yeah they were like, well, we're rich. We have money. We're going to send you to this great rehab. You're going to come home. You're going to be part of the family again. You're going to follow these rules and you will be fine. And it's like, that is not the way that it works. Yeah. And, you know, done with that now. <laughs> Let's all move on. You know, it's such a long road. Like, I don't want people to come out of you be home now thinking that, you know, Joey's going to be fine at the end because that is not the way it works. I don't know. He might end up in rehab several times over his life, right? It's at the end of the book, he's going into rehab for the second time. And that's, that's what addiction is. And that's what recovery is, is just doing what you can like day by day and getting back up and trying again and doing it again. Well, what I could relate to in the book too, is appreciating as the observer, as the family member, that there's not a lot that you can actually do to help them overcome the addiction. You can't do it for them. No. You can't want it for them. And it can be painful to watch them suffer. Yeah. Very painful. It's very painful to watch someone going through addiction and wishing that you can help, but you, you know, the only thing that you can do if you can is to love and support them, but not, not enable them because they have to learn how to, you know, not control it, but they have to learn how to live with it on their own, on their own terms, what their recovery process is going to be. And I think that it's like for Emery, it's very, it's very hard for her to watch Joey going through this because they're really close and she loves him. And they've always been like, you know, thick and thin and she really wants to help him, but she also needs to have an actual life. But it's hard to watch somebody having like a really horrible time of things and all you really want to do is go next door and kiss your secret boyfriend because you feel guilty about that and that's not good because the addiction that someone else has affects everybody else in its orbit and like the mental health crisis is a huge offshoot of the opioid crisis because that addiction filters out to everybody in the orbit like family members friends community your teacher kids in school everybody and it really affects like mental health and so emory's mental health is really deteriorating because she's having like this struggle trying to be like supportive of joey but also you know i want to go i want to kiss gage 
<laughs> and I don't want to be on dance team and I want to do these things. Yeah. I, I, you do, you see the struggle that she has with wanting to be there for her brother, but then at some point starting to feel a little resentment, like, okay, well, my, is this what my role is now forever to make sure that he doesn't use drugs and yeah. at the cost of my own life? Yeah. And, you know, in particular, like no child should have to feel like they're the caretaker for a family member because that essentially robs you of your, your childhood. Like that's what you're going to remember is not really having a childhood because you were always trying to help somebody else through their life problems. And that's difficult. Well, in some ways, the parents were shifting it onto her. They did. Because they didn't want to deal with it. She's the good one in the family, right? She makes everything better. She's the good girl. They have no worries for her. And, you know, those roles get assigned in families. And I think that they're deeply damaging because if Emery is the good one, she's not allowed to fail in any respect because she's a disappointment. And if she's the good one, that means they can have her do everything rather than them addressing maybe their own failures as parents toward Joey. And by labeling Joey the bad one who everyone has to take care of, that just increases his shame and isolation. Like anything he does, if he doesn't do it the way they want it, he's a failure and a disappointment, which is going to lead him back into doing drugs because why bother at that point? Yeah. You know, I did like how Joey got an opportunity to sort of explain himself at some point in the book too, where he talks about how he felt like he could never do anything right. Like everything he tried to do, it was wrong, but it wasn't necessarily that it was wrong. It was just that he was being himself, Yeah, but he wasn't fitting into the mold that, you know, his parents wanted him to be. Yeah. That's exactly true because, you know, we talked about this earlier, but, you know, parents see the child that they want you, they, they see the person they want their kid to become rather than looking at Joey for what he is like a creative kid. Who's not particularly good at school. Like he can't pay attention. Maybe he has something that's undiagnosed. He's, you know, told to sit down and shut up in class when he's little. They don't just accept him and say, okay, we're going to, this kid is this way. We got this one kid who's really beautiful and outgoing and gregarious. That's older daughter. She'll be fine. She's going to shoot herself out of a cannon at circus camp. She's going to be great. We have this other kid who's the good one. She's really quiet. She's very obedient. She gets good grades. Okay. But Joey, you know, they never say, okay, we have a kid here who has a little bit more of a difficult time in life. The approaches with him need to be different and we need to accept him for who he is for all his creativeness and his messiness and his complicatedness, rather than trying to dull all that down with prescribed medications, which is what they start doing when he's very young because they can't handle him. They don't know what to do with him. Right. They have no idea. Yeah. And they have a hard time just letting him be him, which is something you and I were talking about before we actually started recording is how it can be difficult for parents and just, humans when they bring a child into the world to let them just kind of grow and develop into who they're going to be as an individual because part of us just doesn't want them to suffer or make mistakes or especially sometimes the mistakes we made that's right like we you know we mess up all the time as parents and then it's our job to realize that and go back and say to our kid i messed up let's 
start this over or start it from the middle. Let's do it like a different way. And my reactions will be different. I mean, you have to, you have to remember to listen to your child because like you and I talked about, they're becoming their own people and you have to get to know those people. Like, it's not about me not wanting to play Minecraft for like two hours. It's about me saying, Oh, tell me about this world that you're building. You know what I mean? Like you, you have to, they're their own people. They like play Minecraft or like assassins, whatever, for like two hours, you know, sit down with them and play it. And then conversations will happen. Like, don't judge it and be like, Oh, you're just playing a video game again. Because, you know, if I had had video games when I was like 12, I would have played them all the time. And so, you know, that's what they're interested in. Like be interested in your children, like be interested in the things they find joy in and be interested in their sadness and in their like complicated little souls, like be interested in it because that's all they're really looking for is for you to be interested in it and not like judgmental because if you're judgmental, then they feel ashamed like they've done something wrong. They don't even get where all that comes from. They, they don't even have, they're, they're not that complex yet. You know, that were they, like you were saying, we were calling it the toolbox. You know, we have certain things in our toolbox from right. being grownups and yeah. having our own life experiences, but they don't, they have a really small toolbox at this point. Yeah. They're, you know, they're compiling their life experiences like right now when they're teenagers, like those life experiences that they're building a toolbox from are happening like right now. And some of those things you, you have to let happen because that's, that's just like, like life can be like, in, like incredibly painful and sad and, and heartbreaking, but some, you have to let your kids go through some stuff and remain there. Well, I think it's sort of natural for us to look back on our own lives and maybe some of the mistakes we made, some of the hard lessons we learned and not want our children to, in my case, my goddaughter, I, not to not want them to have to experience that pain. Yeah. But it's only natural. It's part of the human experience. They're going to have to. And that's really hard to accept that they are going to have to experience suffering in their lifetime. I know. It's like, it's very, it's very hard to, to accept because like, if you, you think about it and you're like, well, I don't want them to go through some of the pains that I went through. But some of those things are just normal life things like heartbreak or like friend problems. Like you just try to help them through it. And some things are a little bit more extensive and you just have to remain there because you're, you know, you're their parent. I can't control what happens in my life to a large extent and neither can they like, you know, once they're out of the house at school, that's like a whole different world to them. Do you remember that? Like going to school, it's like, eight hours and your parents have no idea like what your school life really is like. Like they might've asked you, like, did you do your homework or do you have an assignment? They have no idea like the social hierarchies you're dealing with, like the really tricky, like friendships you're like trying to manage or not. If you feel like you have no friends, you just have no idea. And it's really super scary. And you know, I, I was really eye opening for me to read "You'd Be Home Now" because it, I did get sort of a refresher on what it's like to be in high school. And you know, we I think as adults we look back on those times as you know they're they're so distant, and we were just different people, less mature. We've been so much since then yeah. that 
you probably, most of us don't care quite as much what people think of us as we get older and mature. But when you're in it, when you're in high school, it's easy for us to say, oh, don't worry about what people think. You know, you won't care about this in 20 years. That's really not helpful to a high schooler. Because that's exactly what they're going through. Because that is their, that's their time away from you as literally their own person at school. And so they're worried about all of that. Of course, they think that people are looking at them or like thinking things about them and they don't know. And so it's really important for parents to remember, you know, when you're a teenager, everything is happening to you at once and you're dealing with so much. But as you know, you get older and you kind of sometimes you lock that away and you forget like how like fraught the teenage years (laughs) like really are. Yeah, I really would not want to go back to that. You know, I don't, I would not, I would not want to be, I don't know. I mean, I write young adult books, so maybe I'm still, I'm probably still like a teenager anyway. I was expelled from high school. So I actually really don't like writing high school and books because I only got to like sophomore year. So I'm always like, I have to look up like, oh God, if you're a junior, what kind of biology are you taking? Why were you expelled? You know, it's just, I was really lonely and I was depressed and I felt really isolated at school. The school I went to was not, there was a lot of bullying going on at the school and I just stopped going and I would take the bus to the public library and just stay there all day and then take the bus back home. So it was chronic truancy. You know, first you get suspended three times and then if you do it again, then you're expelled. And that was actually a good thing that happened for me. Like I, I honestly believe that some kids should not be in traditional high school. Like it's just not, it's not them. And so I was 16 and my mother said, okay, you can get your GED. And I did. And she said, you can get a job. And I did, which was at Wiener Schnitzel, which was my first job doing the hot dogs. And she's like, and you can pay for your own phone, which I did. And she said, and I will pay for you to take two classes at Pima Community College every semester. And I did. And that was like the best experience that I had because I took the classes that I wanted. I was with people who were just trying to take their classes and get their degree. They could care less about this like 16-year-old walking around campus dressed all in black. And I loved it. And I felt really free. And I took creative writing classes and I took like astronomy and it was great. And I did well in school for like the first time in my life. <laughs> so, they should make high school more like college. I think so. You know, you know, I'm not like, I'm not a big fan of like, you have to go to college immediately when you graduate high school. Cause I didn't actually go to college, college and get a degree until I was in my late twenties. Like I definitely feel like some kids should just go out and like get a job and like work and experience life or join the Peace Corps or travel in Europe or do what they can. And just like live a little bit of a life before you decide like what it is exactly that you want to like study that deeply, like figure out who you are. Cause I worked for a long time as a coordinator in a department of English. And I had a lot of kids coming in and they were like, well, I want to take these classes and these classes. And it became apparent to me that they really had no idea like what they really wanted to do. And they were lost and they shouldn't have been there. They should have been out like working, having a job, making mistakes, learning life, and then maybe coming back when they were like 25 or 26. I support that a hundred percent. 
Like college is always there. You can go to community college and get a degree. You can do so much online now. You can go to, you know, state school when you're like in your 30s. You can even do half of that online. It is literally always there for you. And like, what is this lifetime line that we put kids on? Like, there's so much pressure. My son is 13 and they're already talking about, okay, you're getting high school credit for these classes. And then, you know, when you're a freshman and you go here, you're going to start where you're going to start learning these things because you're going to be doing it like in college. Now, like he was 13. He would like to play video games, read his books, write his comics. He's very creative. Like, I don't really want him to be thinking about college at 13. I would rather him be 13. Yeah. I mean, I'm 46 and I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I think about that all, all the time. I'm like, what if this writing thing doesn't work out? What, what am I going to do now? I would probably be a librarian. It seems like it's working out. I hope so. I have a mystery coming out next May that I co-wrote with another author that I'm very excited about. So that goes away from the, the young adult genre or is it still? It's still young adult. And it's a fun, I co-wrote it with Liz Lawson and she wrote a fantastic book called um, The Lucky Ones about the aftermath of a school shooting, which is a really gorgeous, beautiful book about the trauma that um, kids endure after a school shooting. And we check it out. We write like, we write in very similar ways. Like our, our subject matter is the same, but we were talking to each other and we were like, you know, we write these really sad books. And it was like, maybe we should write something for fun together. And she really loves Agatha Christie. And I really like true crime. And so we wrote this book, like, just for fun, a dual point of view. Her character is Alice and mine is called Iris. And they have to team up to solve a murder in their town of Castle Cove using Agatha Christie techniques from the books. And then we actually sold it. Like we didn't, we were like, no one's going to take this from us. Cause it's a really fun book. Cause these girls are not good at their jobs because they're teenagers. How do you expect them to solve a murder? So <laughs> do they, do they solve the murder? Maybe you shouldn't help me. I don't want to ruin it. Well, I'm not going <laughs> to tell you, but it. it was really, it was really fun one to write with someone else, which I've never done before because I felt like I only had to do 50% of the work. <laughs> like my chapters and also it was really fun to write a mystery because you have to have a spreadsheet so you know where like your red herrings are happening and then we ended up uh selling it and it comes out in may and it's called the agathas and so that was really like that was a great experience so maybe the writing thing is working out for right now i think it is but girl in pieces was published in 2016 right and that was your first one so how did you develop this writing career? Because it sounds like it came a little bit later. So I, um, you know, I did the traditional thing. I had the book Girl in Pieces and I didn't really know. I got an MFA in poetry from the University of Minnesota. And so, you know, I started out like thinking I would be a writer, but particularly a poet. And then I wrote this book and I didn't really know what to do. And so I went to a writing conference and I signed up for um, a special session with an agent. And then you send them like 20 pages of your book and they, you know, they tell you what they think. And like that agent, I ended up signing with that agent. But then we ended up parting ways like a couple of years later, which I was very amicable. 
And I just queried a whole bunch of other agents. And um, this one woman named Julie Stevenson that I had queried with um, part of Girl in Pieces wrote me back like a five-page email. Like she got this book. Some of the other um, agents who responded were like, this isn't my cup of tea or nobody's going to publish this book. And I thought that was interesting because while I was at that writing conference, I met an editor from a publishing house and she had really liked the bit that she read. And she told me a male agent and a male editor are probably never going to take this book on because it, it deals so deeply with girls' issues. And I was like, okay, good to know. And it turned out that she was <laughs> exactly right. But Julie Stevenson wrote me this five-page email and she completely got to the core of what Charlie was and she didn't want to change her. There were some agents who had emailed me and they thought, well, we should revise this and we should play it up and she should have like a sexual compulsion. And that's why she self-harms. And I was like, you know that? I don't think it works that way. And she, <laughs> even if it did, that sounds like a really adult book there. And so, um, and so, you know, we like worked on the book a little bit and then we, we sent it out and I had, you know, editors like bid on it. You have offers. And the editor that I went with, Krista Marino at Delacourt, she really understood the book. She understood the book too. And she has this really wild sense of humor as well. And she's like, Kathleen, I am a very bitter person. And I cried three times on the subway reading this. And I was like, okay. So you know, they offered me a two book deal. How to Make Friends with the Dark was the second book. And then I have another two book deal. The first one of which is um, You'd Be Home Now. And then another book that comes out in 2023. So I'm just kind of like trying to piecemeal it along. 2023. Yeah, that's for the other standalone. The Agatha's is a different, it's with the same publisher, but it's a different um, contract. So it comes out in May. Well, I do still have to read How to Make Friends with the Dark. So I have that, but then I will be dry. <laughs> I will need another book. <laughs> How to Make Friends with the Dark is, you know, it's a very intense emotional book about grief because Tiger's mother dies suddenly and she's 16. And that, you know, that book was, I was really thinking about my sister's death and my mother's death. And a lot of that um, comes out in the book, like my experiences with grief. And Tiger goes through the foster care system because the father that she's never actually known is in prison. And through the course of the book, she learns that she has an older half sister from her mother and that man whose name is Shana. And Shana is 20. And she is the one who is entrusted to come take care of Tiger when she can barely take care of herself. So you have a 20-year-old taking care of a 16-year-old, both dealing with um, their own issues. Well, I can't wait to read it. So that one's another uh, sad one. Well, you know, they're sad, but I mean, they're dealing with real issues that happen all the time. Yeah. And I did feel that Girl in Pieces and You'd Be Home Now I don't know if I can say happy ending with, you know, rainbows and unicorns, but I would say optimistic. I think they, I don't, I don't ever want to wrap everything up because I don't think that, you know, life is tidy when you have a problem. And I don't want to give anyone like a false ending, like, okay, everything's great now. 
she was self-harming and now she's not. And everything's like super because life doesn't work that way. But I, I think especially in young adult books, if you're, if you're going to write realistic fiction, you have to at least have like a, a small window of hope at the end. Like you have to think that, okay, these characters made it somewhere and they are better off than when they started the book. And I have hope that they will be okay. And it, I did have like a reviewer, I think it was on Goodreads, you know, read You'd Be Home Now. And I love reading reviews and I think it's great. And people should say whatever they want because by that time it's their book and their experience. And they said, I really didn't appreciate the realistic depictions of realistic events in this realistic novel. And I was like, that's an interesting review because it's a realistic book. And then they went on to say they normally read fantasy. And I was like, well, I think that maybe this is not the book for. Yeah, maybe that's why they read fantasy. They probably went back to fantasy after that. So if you could, can you share a little bit about your writing process? You know, I, whenever I read a book, I always wonder, did the author just sit down for, you know, from beginning to end and just write it like this? Do they write it in pieces? Do they know what's going to happen when they start? So can you answer those questions? So I think the process for each book for a writer, the actual writing process is different. Like for each book, like each book in your life situation dictates how you're going to write that book like I didn't think anything was going to happen with girl in pieces so I like worked on it for nine years and I had 13 drafts and in those nine years my mother and my sister died and I had two kids and so I had to take time off to like you know raise babies and do all that and work on it like here and there and then when you get a contract to write you know you have a deadline (laughs) so you know, how to make friends with the dark. I had to write in a much different way because, you know, the book is supposed to come out in like two years. So we need to have a draft by this time. And so you're writing on a deadline. So that can change how you do things. And I do want to say for your listeners that if you're an older person um, and you want to be a writer or someone creative, you know, finding the time to do it is really difficult. And you need to take the time that you need and the time that you have. Um, If you have kids, you can get up early and try to write before they get up and before you have to like get them off to school. You can try to write on your lunch breaks from work. But How to Make Friends with the Dark was mostly written at night after my kids were asleep. Um, And then sometimes while they were asleep in the bed on either side of me on my laptop on my knees. And I learned from that experience that I, I never want to do that again because, you know, it worked, but it was also really tiring. And You'd Be Home Now was written mostly in the mornings before um, they got up for school and then during the day after they would go to school. The, and I there's a wonderful writer named Amy Shern. And she was like, she wrote this great essay on Medium about her writing process changing with her life changing each time with each book and with her kids. And she was like, so her first book was long and stretchy, kind of like girl in pieces. Cause she had a lot of time because she wasn't married and she didn't have kids and she didn't have a full-time job. And she started it while she was in graduate school. So she had all this time to like really work on every sentence and like go as long as she wanted and add all these elements. And then her second book, she had a baby 
So suddenly her chapters, because she only had like brief concentrated moments of time to write every day between taking care of this baby and doing her like at home job, all the chapters in that book are really short and intense because she was working on them in like 10 to 15 minute bursts. So it's a much more intensely written book. And I thought that was so interesting. And then her third book, her kids are older and they're in school and she has a job, but now she has a lot more time. She takes her whole lunch break and then she has time to write like before they come home. And so the chapters in that book are a little bit longer and like the ruminations in the book are a little bit longer again because she has more time to think as she's like physically writing the sentences. And I, I thought that was like very interesting. And then you'd be home now with like, it's intercut with the poems from Miseducated on Instagram and one. I did that because the book was loosely inspired by a play where there's the stage manager who's talking to the audience. And I was like, how am I going to reimagine the stage manager? And I thought, oh, it'll be a teenager on Instagram who talks to everybody. Like that was a necessity for me, partly because that was kind of an intense book to write, like Joey's experiences and sort of re um, living like my first days of getting sober, like Joey's thoughts about his recovery are very much mine and about like the why he would do drugs. And I was like, I have to take breaks. And that's really how the character of miseducated came out was because I was like, I need to do something short and let somebody else speak. Who's not like directly involved in the action of the book. I need like a breather and I need to go back to poetry because I miss writing poetry. That's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Also, you know, writing, the first thing is you have to stop thinking about the exterior world. Like you have to get off social media and you have to stop looking at everybody else's success or what they're doing. And you have to believe in your story and you literally just have to put yourself in your chair and start writing that story. You have to shut like everything off, but nobody can write the story that you have in you until you sit down in that chair and write it yourself. And it's really hard. It's really hard, but you have to like sit down, get your notebook out or your laptop. And you actually just have to start writing it. Like that's my number one thing. It's like, if you have that story, nobody's going to write it, but you, you guys, you actually have to just sit there and do it. Just spill it. Yeah. You have to spill it. Whatever story it is. Like if it's a fantasy, a mystery, like, I don't care. Nobody's going to do it, but you, you have that idea. You need to sit down. And you know what? It's such a physical manifestation of like joy. Even when you're writing like a really sad thing, like it's creativity. When you do something creative, don't you feel like great? Like you physically and mentally feel better. Yeah. I mean, I, I started this podcast and as a, that's creative, creative outlet. Like it's my art. This is your art and you do it and you love talking to people and you're like learning more about the world and sharing it with the world and you feel better. Like people need to remember that creativity in whatever form is like a, it's like self-care. We stop that sometime in school, you know, everybody's like doing art when they're really little. And then suddenly it's like, my coloring is so bad. And it's like, who told you that? And then they stop. And it's like, why? And we should have art for an hour and a half every day in school. They should have music where they're doing all kinds of music every day in school. You shouldn't have to test into chorus. Everybody should be allowed to sing. 
because it makes you feel better. It lowers your blood pressure. It lessens your anxiety doing something creative. You know, bring that back. And I, I think that that will really improve a lot of kids and adults' mental health. And I, you remember the whole adult coloring book craze? Like, yes. What do you think that was? I'm sitting there. I used to write in a Barnes and Noble at night before I got divorced and my husband was watching the kids and I would go right there. And there would be all these, you know, usually women around and they were, they were their adult book coloring, their coloring book clubs. And that's why they were doing it. And one of them like looked at me once and I was like, hey, you guys are here like every Tuesday. And she's like, this is the only time I feel free. Like, I feel like I can breathe. I forgot how great it is just to make colors. Yeah. Like that wasn't something, you know, people made fun of it. Like, oh, don't tell me books. I'm like, no, that's really good. She's like working out some anxiety. And we should be encouraging that. I I totally agree with you. My mom crochets. She has a lot of anxiety. And she's always like, you know, you should crochet too. I'm like, I I do not have the patience or the coordination to sit and crochet. My mind is always going a million miles an hour. She's like, but if you crocheted, you have to actually focus on what you're doing. That that's actually what makes it relaxing. Okay, but maybe that crocheting doesn't work for you. And like podcasting works for you. And reading books, even reading books is a creative action on your part, even if you're reading them, because your brain is moving along and your imagination is processing the storyline and you're like, you're deeply in the story. And so there are all different ways to be creative that we just sort of forget about, you know, when we become adults because we're like, oh, we got to get a job and we have to work. And it's like, and we forget all about that. And it's, you know, it's just another way of being like physical, but in a mental way. Like some people work out and they get their anxiety out that way. Some people cannot do that for whatever reason. And it's like, go buy yourself an adult coloring book, honestly, and sit down and get some bright colors and do whatever you want. And I guarantee you in 10 minutes, you'll feel a little better. I'm going to try it. I think I, I do have some crayons at home I'm totally for my sorry. goddaughter. Um, but I've been finding that I've been spending some time in nature mm-hmm. and I'm finding that that is very relaxing to me. I it think is, you know, it is going outside. It's a, it's a good thing. I live in Arizona, so it's a little hot. So you can only go out in the morning and like <laughs> at night, but you know, sometimes I think about that, like how often we're just like inside in different environments and we don't really go outside as much as we used to when we were kids and like feel the grass on your bare feet or just like really look at the sky or like look at the trees or little creatures and we should be doing that as well because it's healthy it's outside well I love it I mean I was up in the Catskills I'm on the east coast I was in the Catskills and I stayed at this Airbnb it was on a farm there were cows in the back yeah they were I could hear the mooing all times of day and you know, you just realize how big the world is and that rush of activity is, it's just because you're in the middle of it. You can remove yourself from that. Yeah. You realize that. Yeah. Like my happy place is visiting the ocean. Like I love the ocean. I would totally move to a coastal town if I had enough money. So that, that it, I just feel really peaceful 
and like at rest, like when I'm by a large body of water. Well, I feel the same way. What sign are you? (laughs) So I'm in Aries. Oh, me too. Okay. So I've always wondered this, like if, because I was late and I was supposed to be born in like March, which I think would have made me a Pisces. Does that matter? I think it does. So what, what is your birth date? April 12th. Okay. So I'm March 21. So I'm actually the first day of Aries. So I'm told that I could have some qualities of Pisces because I'm on the cusp. But if you talk to someone who really knows about astrology, there's all other kinds of signs that you have, not just your sun sign, which is what we're talking about, like Aries. That's your sun sign. But there's all these other signs, like a moon sign and a rising, and I don't even know all of them. But those tell you a lot about your personality too. Oh, that's interesting. I know a lot of um, authors who actually do like, you know, whole astrological charts for their characters. Oh, wow. But then like they go, they like, they have their birth date set. They like look up what happened on that day in history. They have like a whole like personality sheet based on astrology for their characters that they follow. Wow. Like I can't go that far, but I admire it. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. Is it because they don't want to just dream up the character? They want to, want it to be somewhat like organic, like it was born somehow? Yeah, I think so. Like that's part of their, their whole, like building the background for their character and all this other stuff. Well, they would do this because, you know, they're Pisces. And I, I think it's really, I think it's really interesting. Like that's part of, of their whole writing process. I'm always interested in like other people's writing processes. Like some people, you know, they call them plotters or pantsers. Some people like write out their plots beforehand and they have big spreadsheets chapter by chapter and like beat by beat and like post-it notes all over the wall and like very complete timelines for action. And other people are called pantsers and I'm pretty much one of them where you have an idea and you think about it a long time and maybe you make some notes, but then you just start writing. Yeah, I think that's what I would be. And then, you know, whatever happens in the course of the book, you know, happens. So do you even know how your book's going to end? Like, what do you know about your book when you start it? So I think about the book for a really long time, like in my head, like when I'm walking or like cooking or doing something like that or watching TV, because I watch a lot of TV. Um, Don't make fun of me. And so (laughs) um, I think about it for a really long time and I make notes in a a composition book, just like little notes, because little scenes will come to me or something. And I want to make sure that I have that. And then the weirdest thing probably of all is that I cannot actually physically start like writing the book until I find the song that is kind of the book. And then I will listen to that song. Like it will just happen. I will hear the song and I'm like, oh, this song perfectly encapsulates this book or the main character. And then I listen to that song like the entire time that I'm writing the book, like that's the song I will listen to before I sit down to start writing to get me back in the mood. I don't know why that is. But that's interesting. So the song for Girl in Pieces was Camera by Wilco. Okay. And the song for How to Make Friends with the Dark was Sign of the Times by Harry Styles. And the song for You'd Be Home Now was Let You Down by um, a singer named N.F. I know, I know it's very, it's like, no, everyone's always like, what? That is crazy. I'm like, I don't know. It's just the way, because I'm, I'm very influenced by music. Like music really gets me creatively 
going. And I, I just, I need to have like that song that means the book to me. No, I, I, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. Um, I started to write a memoir and which actually was harder than I thought it would be because it is even, hard. That's you should just turn it into fiction. You know, that's a good idea. Like everyone told me to write a memoir and I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do that, but I can fictionalize that story because then it can go wherever I want it to go and it doesn't have to stay with me. It can be hard to talk about um, some of those painful experiences you've had. Actually, something I wanted to ask you about is I came across an article someplace where you explained how you would inspire people or, you know, kind of coach them how to start their own book with a post-it. Do you know what I'm talking about? So the, so because I write about, um, realistic issues and my books like typically spring from something that has happened to me, but I have to translate it into fiction because like you said, it's very hard to talk about some of this stuff, right? When it's so personal to you. But the thing that's beautiful about fiction is that once you give the story to a fictional character, it's not you anymore. And that, that character will take on a life of its own and their, their story will just happen and it will have nothing to do with like your personal story. Like I said, it might be your experiences and your feelings, but they'll be on their own. But the way that I started with um, teens in particular is a post-it note. And when I'm doing workshops, I ask them to write, you know, the biggest secret that they've never told anyone. And I'm not going to make them read it out loud. I'm not going to make them share it. It's only for them. Right. So if I write down on my post-it note, you know, sometimes I cut myself. That's a really big secret. But if I give that to my character, it's no longer me. It's not me. I gave that to Charlie. And I might give Charlie some of my experiences, but now I've given her a name and her name is Charlie. And if some and I can her story will blossom from there. And I have a freedom then from the emotional intensity of telling my own story and being afraid of that story or what people will think or upsetting people because I gave it to a fictional character. So if your biggest secret, say, if you wrote down on a piece of paper, my mother drank excessively when I was younger. I always felt afraid. Okay. Now I want you to take your post-it over here and I want you to think about what you wrote. How old were you? And maybe you'll write like 15 on the piece of paper. And you'll say, okay, what do you remember about that time? And you'll write, I remember once I had to clean her up after she passed out in the hallway. And I will say, okay. Then the first line of your book is, last night I had to clean my mother up after she passed out in the hallway. My name is Anna. Give your character a name. Like, and you, you will actually feel a sense of relief the moment that you put that hard thing that happened to you down on a page. You will feel a sense of relief now that it's happening to a fictional character and not you. And they are going to experience all the stuff that you could never express and your feelings about it. And their fictional aspects of their story will happen as you go on. Like you don't even have to worry about it. Like your imagination will 
take over. But it's a real it's a real sense of relief for a lot of teens to be able to articulate their trauma in that way in a fictional world. They just need to know how to get the first two lines on the paper. I think that's brilliant. So, you know, I mean that's I mean that's one way that you can do it. There's a really good book by Anne Lamott too called Bird by Bird, which I love. And it has super short chapters with writing prompts and but it, it it's also interspersed with like little interludes of her life and she's in recovery and she's written some really beautiful books. You know, one is like going to a thrift store and getting, you know, you always see like those boxes of like people's old photographs in the thrift store. Like yeah. take them, you know, and who is this person in the photograph? Like what do you think about them? Give them a name. Write a story about them. And you you'd be amazed once you start and give yourself 20 minutes how much of a hold that story is going to take on you. Well, it's like you said, you have to write. Just sit down and write. You want to sit down. Sometimes you need a prompt to get started, and I think that's okay. Like, you'll figure out what what prompts you need. And, you know, technically, I write out of panic and fear because I have, like, deadlines. Yes, well, now. (laughs) I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't recommend that, but it works for me. So that's what I do. And actually, now that we're talking about this, I... Did your book, You'd Be Home Now, did that start with a post-it that you had found on the floor? It was when I was doing that writing exercise and it's, um, I was doing a class visit at a high school and I gave, uh, I hand the post-its out to the teens and they get a pencil and I ask them to do this and we go through the steps of the exercise. And then after um, the class had left, I was cleaning up and I found the post-it note. Someone had left a post-it note behind. And they, it had said, you know, I love my sister, but I hate my sister. She's a drug addict. And I just started thinking about that. Like, I love my sister. I hate my sister. Because you love them, but you hate them because they are sucking all the energy out of the room. And you ought to be able to feel that way when someone you know is really struggling, especially if you're a kid in that family. Because that kid is going to get all the attention. And that is a normal, valid way to feel. And I thought, oh my goodness. And I was thinking about that story and that post-it note and about writing from the perspective of a character who was watching everything unfold rather than being the person that it's happening to, as in my first two books. And then my editor said, you know, have you ever thought of maybe reimagining Thornton Wilder's play Our Town? Yes. <laughs> a contemporary young adult novel. And I love that play. I love it a lot. And I was like, huh, you know, I could do that. And then I thought about it. I reread the play a couple of times and I was pretty positive that if Thornton Wilder wrote that play today, because, you know, it it was performed in the thirties, the opioid crisis would be in his fictional small town of Grover's Corners, because he does talk about suicide and alcoholism pretty openly in that play. And I'm like, he, he would have the opioid crisis. And so everything kind of merged in a kind of happy accident with this post-it from this student who so desperately, I think, wanted to be seen and yet felt invisible and was feeling all these feelings about addiction happening to someone in her family. And it just kind of happy accidented with reimagining our town. There was a lot going on in that book because then there was this little side story of her and Gage. Yeah. And the sexting. I mean, 
you know, that that could have even I mean, you could probably write a whole book just on that. I really could see this book being a mini series on Hulu. I'm just saying, you know, I really I wish maybe someday that, you know what? Sometimes they, you know, my books get shopped around Hollywood and then the answer comes back that, well, they're too dark. And I'm like, have you seen Euphoria? And (laughs) but, you know, I don't know. I don't want to get my hopes up. I just try to do what I'm doing because, you know, I try to really limit the opportunities for disappointment in my life. (laughs) It works much better for me that way. If I just be like, no, I'm just going to, you know, concentrate on this and those things that would be great. But you know who would do this, though, is Reese Witherspoon. Well, do you know her? Can you say I I wish? Because you know what? I think that Reese would be great as Abigail, the mom, and you'd be home now. Like, I think she would be perfect. She would be. And like, weirdly, when I was writing the dad, the person that I was thinking about, like physically, was like Mark Marin for some reason, like with shorter hair, but with his glasses. And I'm like, he would totally be married to Reese. And he would totally I can't picture be- who he is. He was on Glow. He's a stand-up comedian. He has his own podcast called the What the Fuck Podcast. And so he was on the Netflix show Glow about the lady wrestlers. Did you ever watch that? He was so good. Like just go no. to this podcast. And I follow him on Instagram and he does these really long like vibes. Um, and it's just really, I'm like, oh my God, he would be like the perfect dad in this book. Like I could see that. I just looked him up and yes, I know who he is. And yes, I think you're right. Who would be Emmy? I don't know. I don't know who would be Emmy. I haven't really thought about it because you know, she was so like interesting for me to write because she was, she's very, she's interior in the same way that like my other characters are, but like her world experience is so not mine, like being incredibly wealthy. So I didn't really keep a clear picture of her like in my mind, but I thought that for um, Joey, did you ever watch The Walking Dead? Yes. So I thought Chandler Riggs, who played Carl, yes with his hair longer again like he's the perfect age and you you know the girls in the beginning are like oh that joey webb he used to be so hot but he's not now because he's just a dirty i was like you know what that like sense of like innocence and like despair i was like that could be like chandler riggs like i could totally see him as joey like you would (laughs) fall in love with him and feel sorry for him but also be like oh come on man yeah no i'm i'm feeling that I'm so feeling we're like, that we're casting the whole mini series, <laughs> which is great. Like this is a fun, this is a fun thing to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think that you, you get those, you kind of, well, when you're reading the book, you, you kind of figure out in your own mind what they look like. You picture people. Yeah. And sometimes you do that with villains, you know, people that you already sort of know or see on television. Yeah. That's, a, that's exactly right. Yeah. You know who else has a production company I think might be into this is Drew Barrymore. Oh my God. So my son has just realized his Drew Barrymore crush. We really? All crush. Yeah. Cause he watched never been kissed and he's like, Oh my God. I say, she's kind of old for him. <laughs> That's okay. Who does not love Drew Barrymore? Like we have been with Drew since ET. Yes. Grown up with Drew. We were there for like the teen movies. We were there for like the resurgence and her recovery and like the whole thing. Like Drew is us. Absolutely. Well, I don't know how this all works, but do you farm it out to her? Do, do you have your people send it to her people? Have just, this? 
um, what happens is your your literary agency they have like contacts, and then um, you have like a film and a TV agent, and then they're responsible for um, setting meetings and sending out like galleys and seeing if there's interest and things like that. So, but like I said, I try to stay out of that, and I love my agent just for the reason that she doesn't tell me something until there's something to tell me. Okay, she understands that? Like she's never like. Ooh, we got like a little nibble because she understands that like I try to limit my disappointment. So, you know, she does all that and she will stay quiet until there's something to actually like talk. No, I think that's healthy. I think that's healthy. If you have no expectations, it can't be disappointed, right? If I have no expectations, then pretty much anything that happens to me is a win. Yeah. I think that's a great way to look at life. Yeah. Really, I do. So do you have any other little seeds? planted for future books are you writing anything or are you kind of focusing on what you've got going on now um i'm just focusing on what i've got going on now like i have the mystery with liz coming out in the spring and i hope that does really well because that was just a really great thing to write something completely different and it was really fun to um liz is really good at like plotting mysteries because she's such an agatha christie fan and I was always the one who was like, okay, but what does the body look like when it bubbles up in the water after three days? And so <laughs> I'd be like, so I'm forensic files. Um, and that was just, that was a lot of, it was a lot of fun to do, but you know, mostly I'm just, I try to write a little bit every day and, you know, I have like another book coming out in 2023, but that hasn't been um, announced yet. And I don't have a title. So I guess my goal now is to just like keep writing more books and hoping that my publisher uh, takes them. Is the 2023 book mostly written? It's all written. It's all addressed. It's all, it's, it's a complete book. Okay. Do you want to give us any hints about that one or is that a secret? Uh, it's, you know, it's about a girl who self-medicates with alcohol and she ends up in a rehab and her parents are divorced and it, you know how that affects her and that's really all i can say about like that book at a, a time so you know i you know i'm excited about that it felt like it's set in tucson again like girl in pieces is mostly in tucson and then how to make friends with the dark is in a fictional town outside tucson but ends in tucson you'd be home now is in new hampshire because the play was in new hampshire and I never want to write a book that's not in Tucson again because I had to make up that whole town and like figure out weather. And it was like, <laughs> like, I don't want to do that again. And I like writing things based in Tucson where I live because then I can put real places in there because all the places in Girl in Pieces and um, How to Make Friends with the Dark are real Tucson places, like the restaurants and the streets. And so I, I really, I like that because Southwest should be in more books. And the, book that I wrote with Liz, uh, we made up the town of Castle Cove in California, but it's kind of based on Big Sur, where she used to live. Okay. Like, the Agathas was being pitched as Big Little Lies meets Veronica Mars. Okay. So it has, like, that coastal atmosphere. It's a mystery and a fun one, but it has, like, some real-life stuff happening in it as well. Well, I'm looking forward to that one as well. And I just have to say thank you so much. It's 
it's nice to get, you know, the inside scoop on the books that I've read. Cause you know, when you have a really good book and you don't want it to end yeah, and then you find yourself thinking about the characters, you know, as though they're real and no wonder what they're doing now. I wonder how that ever turned out. Well, you know, Charlie from girl in pieces, she would be 21 this year. I think, about, I think about that all the time. I'm like, she would be 21 and her life would be vastly different than when she was 17. Would you ever do a sequel to any of them? People ask me that like all the time. And I don't, I, I, I think that the things that readers come up with, what would happen to Charlie are more creative than anything I could come up with. And I, I don't know what that sequel would look like. Also, it would have to probably be an adult book. That's right. It would be. You know, I'm not opposed to, but I would really have, I would have to, I would have to really think about that. Well, I think that every parent should read these books. Every parent, especially if you have teenage children, should read these books or a preteen. I think, I think that if you're a parent and there's some stuff you want to talk about with your teenager and maybe you don't know how to broach it, you should read some books together, you know, like a little book club. Yes. <laughs> and that can be a really good way for you to be like, okay, so this happened in this chapter to this character. What do you think about that? How does that make you feel? You know, and you can like start that conversation. And I mean, why not? You know, we read to our kids. Why not read with them when they get older? Well, yeah. I mean, you, something that you were saying earlier is keeping those lines of communication open. Yeah, between right. yourself and your child. You you want your child to call you in the middle of the night when they've done something bad that you you know mom or dad wouldn't like, but they still call you because yeah. they need help and they want you to come get them. You want them to feel comfortable doing that. And I, I think, you know, if you're an adult and you're reading like some YA books, you know, that can maybe help you as well. Like remember what it was like for you and to be like, oh, right. I completely forgot that's something that happens. Mm, Better put that on the radar. Yeah. I mean, I think some of us forget how painful it was to be a teenager. I think so. I mean, I Thanks for the reminder, Kathleen. (laughs) Also, I wanted to say like probably before like you air the podcast, you'll probably want to add like a trigger warning to some people who are listening. Like we're going to talk about some issues like self-harm and addiction. No, thank you for that. Yes. We didn't delve like really deeply, deeply into them, but for some people, they, they like a heads up that we're going to talk about that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. And thank you for being so generous with your time because I told you an hour and here I've been talking for 90 minutes. So thank you. I've taken up your whole morning. Oh no, no. Well, actually it's afternoon here because I'm in New Jersey. But thank you for your being so gracious with your time. And I do want to end it with the final question that I had sort of given you a heads up on. And I wanted to know what are some books you've read that made a real impact on you in your lifetime? So the first one was A Wrinkle in Time. Remember that book? I haven't read that. Meg Goes into Space by Madeline uh, Langle. And so she, you know, she goes into the universe searching for her dad who's lost. And they they made a movie of that. And I still remember viscerally like. Uh, like my reactions to that book. Well, I read that book like over and over and over. Like that has stayed with me. Like Meg's loneliness, her father's disappearance, like her fractured family life, the sandwiches she makes for her brother, the spirits that come help her. 
like that was a really impactful book for me. And that was the one that made me really want to be a writer. And the second one um, is The Catcher in the Rye. And I know people have strong reactions to that book and it's very much a product of its time. Um, but I loved Holden Caulfield because he was the first character who was a teenager that I read who was depressed and suicidal. And like that was his character. Like that was the core. Is he going to get through this? And I mean, that book is so voicey. Like you can't put it down. Like I, I think I read it in like two hours because it's not that long. And it was my mother's old copy from the fifties, this paperback. And so I think those were the two books that really impacted me when I was young, like 11 and 12. And the other book was this book about Jim Morrison and the doors called no one here gets out alive. <laughs> you know, I read that when I was 11 because I just saw the picture of him on the cover and I was like, what's going on there? And I read this whole book about this, uh, you know, it, you know, it's like, it was the biography of how he came to be Jim Morrison. And I don't know, but it just spoke to me like the darkness in my own soul. And I ended up being this huge, the doors were the very first band that I ever loved that I bought like, an album with my own money and that was probably too deep and dark for an 11 year old but man that stayed with me and I still think about like that book like, all the well time. I gotta read it now was it was it a cassette tape um no it was a biography of him and the doors and the whole band well the album you said you had bought the album oh the the album that I bought was their day de- debut album the doors so and it was, was not on a cassette I bought the LP oh you know, I had the Columbia Record Club deal. Right? Yes, I remember those. And so like, <laughs> I was listening to the doors on my headphones really loud at night. And it was really soothing for some reason. And then like my other LPs were like the Stray Cats and like the Thompson Twins. It was like that whole era. <laughs> yeah. There were two forces fighting deeply within me. Well, I think that my first one that I re- that I bought was on a cassette tape. And it was Def Leppard, Hysteria. Oh, I had that. Pour some, yeah, pour some sugar on me and the whole thing. Like, I had that. That was cassette tape era. And then did you have, like, John Mellencamp, too? Like, Little Pink Houses? I didn't have that one. You know, I just remembered that sitting on my shelf. And every single song on that album was good. I know that people, you know, they send each other, like, their Spotify playlist. But you know what? There was something really special about having someone craft a mixtape for you <laughs> and give you the cassette tape because they spent all that time picking the songs and recording them and making like little interstitials. Like make somebody maybe one that had like little snippets from like Star Trek, like voiceovers. Like that was a true and genuine gift that can never be replicated by like a Spotify playlist being shared with you. It's so true. A lot of work went into that. Yeah. I have like my cassette tape still and all the mixtapes that like really I saved them. I can't get rid of them. They're like little pieces of like art. They are. I wish I still had them. And the satisfying, you like you peel off the plastic and then the satisfying click of opening it and then like sliding it into your Walkman or whatever you were using. You can't, you can't, you just cannot replicate that. Well, you must also remember rushing to the radio to press record when your favorite song came on. Yeah, see, and you would do that for your mixtape too. If you didn't have a song, like you'd have to call and request it. Does anybody do that anymore? I don't know. Well, have- I guess you don't have to. I mean, does anybody even listen to the radio? I do, but I guess like everything is, a lot of it is pre-recorded. 
Yes. And I remember also being mad when the DJ would talk too late into the track because then you'd have the person's voice on the song. Yeah. But, you know, remember like Wolfman Jack? No. Oh, he was this very famous DJ in like the late 70s, early 80s. And I used to stay up uh, really late at night to like hear him. I think he was out of New York or something. So, yeah, like there's a whole era that like kids today don't. (laughs) They just don't remember that joy of like waiting for a song to come on the radio or if you had to request it and sitting there for like three hours waiting for the DJ to play it and maybe say your name and that you requested it. It was the whole thing. Do they even do this anymore? Well, where they say, if you're the 100th caller, you're going to win two tickets to whatever concert. They They still do that. They do some of them like they still do. But it's just it's not the same. No. Well, they're memories, right? Nostalgia. Nostalgia. So I have to ask you, do you still feel lonely? Oh yeah, all the time. It's so, just that I don't I don't mind it anymore. Like I'm at home in my loneliness. And like I said, you know, the things that have happened to me in my life have shaped who I am. And part of that um is you know, just, just accepting that sometimes I feel extremely lonely and I'm out there and I'm like you know, I could be shopping and I see people and I still have those feelings like, oh, I bet they've had like a really, you know, happy life where they've been really nurtured. And then I'll feel like lonely and then I'll be like, eh, you know, I'm doing okay for myself. I have survived and I'm here and I'm doing what is literally my dream job of being a writer. Right. Like I achieved that. that you absolutely did. Right. And so I'm very proud of myself. I took something from like ashes and I made something out of it and I have two beautiful children who are amazing and creative and like witty and um I I feel okay with myself I feel okay with like feeling lonely I think it's okay to feel lonely I think that's a big thing these days is that you should allow yourself to feel lonely sometimes it's okay you don't have to feel shameful or like there's something wrong with you it's okay to feel lonely in the world well, now we can just fill up the space with scrolling through Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, but, you know, we'll, we'll have to chat again so we can talk about like what social media does to your sense of self. So, yeah. And it, you yeah. Know, all I'll say about social media is that it can simultaneously make you feel like uh, you have so many friends on the planet and then also make you feel like you have none. It can also make you feel like a loser because you're, everybody else's life is so perfect on Instagram all the time. That's all on the page though. Like you have, I tell my kids, I'm like, okay, we're looking at this post, but I don't actually know like what's going on behind the scenes. I just see this happy person on a beach reading a book. And maybe it's because that person is really happy in that moment reading a book. But I don't know what happens after that photo is taken. I don't know if they go back to their hotel room and they're alone or their dad yells at them. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't see that part. I only see what they choose to tell you because they're curating their life for you. Absolutely. Yeah. So you always have to keep that like in mind. And I will say that on one thing I like about TikTok is that I see a lot of people on their teens and adults really talking about their trauma in an open way. And it's like a little diary format. And I feel so proud of like each and every one of them that even though that's kind of a curation in a way as well, 
but they found a format that really works. And I see them talking openly about like mental health and psychological issues. And like, every time I see those videos, I'm just like, you're amazing. Wow. Somebody's going to scroll past this and see it and be like, wait, what? That's how I feel. And I, I just think that's, that's one of the more beautiful sides of social media for me. It's like seeing those, those videos on TikTok. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out because I think it's easy to hate on social media, the negative aspects of it, but there are positive aspects of it. Like you can, it's like a book you can be scrolling past, but some, you see something and it like really touches you deeply and you're like, okay. And you connect with it in some way like that can be a good, that connection, that feeling connection can be a good thing for some people. Well, I highly recommend that everybody look you up on social media. You're on Instagram at Miss M-I-S-S Kathleen Glasgow. You're on Twitter at Kath, drop the lean, Kath Glasgow. And you're on TikTok at Kathleen Glasgow. And I will have links to all of that in the show notes so people can look you up. And I'll be stalking you on social media. So don't be alarmed. (laughs) Thank you so much for, for reading these books and having me. And this was a really great conversation. And I hope I get to talk to you again. Well, I hope I get to talk to you again. And thank you so much for the writing tips. I am going to channel my inner writer and I'm going to follow some of those prompts that you recommended. And I'm a little embarrassed to say I have bird by bird on my bookshelf. I just haven't read it yet. So it's so good. Like the chapters are like, I recommend that to anybody if you're thinking about uh, writing or you need some prompts or how to think, because the chapters are so short and so elegantly written. And they're so like, People that I've given that book to, they they love the book. They love it. Yeah, so my aspiring writers out there, don't give up. Because I know there's a lot of them out there. But read bird by bird. You know, follow some of these prompts. Don't give up. And highly recommend that definitely get You'd Be Home Now, which drops on September 28th. And you can find the work. We can find it on um, Amazon, definitely. Oh, it's Is, everywhere, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's an audio book as well, in case people like prefer to listen to books, because listening to books is also reading. Okay. Well, I've had that debate with people. And then I definitely recommend Girl in Pieces. That was what got me hooked on you. And I'm going to read How to Make Friends with the Dark. And I'm sure that's going to be wonderful. And maybe we could talk about that another time. I would love to. Thank you again so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.